Nå er det tid for nordisk på trikk. Welcome to our podcast featuring interviews, music, folk tales, and lots of hygge, all with a Nordic flavor. I'm your host, Eric Stavney. That was the sound of a lure played outside as if in the mountains of Norway. The lure is the subject of this podcast, what this mysterious horn is and what its place is in history. I got seriously interested in the lure and its history when I was invited to visit Ron Logie Stabur in 2020 in the hills of western Montana, about which I made a podcast and wrote an article in the Norwegian American News. And I marveled at how detailed Ron and Charlene were about having authentic Norwegian things in their cabin, along with the souvenirs and heirlooms and rose mulling and carving that Ron had done. There were some things on the walls, one of which was this long trumpet-like thing wrapped in birch bark. And I knew that was a lure. Traditionally, these blowing horns were used up in the mountain farms by women tending to the cows in their summer grazing pastures. They were sounded to call in the cows or the sheep or whatever to signal others across the valley. Near the lure on the wall was a tapestry or or a weaving depicting one such young lady blowing a lure with the valleys in the distance. And I commented something like, nice lure, Ron, this is a nice one. And the nice tableau of the mountain farm girl calling the cows home. And Ron said, you recognize it, right? I said, uh, what? And Ron said, that's Prilaguri. I said, can you spell that? Is that that the name of the mountain farm? He goes, no, that's Prilaguri. She's blowing the horn there. P-R-I-L-L-A-R, Prila, Guri, G-U-R-I. I never heard of her. Yeah, she saved Norway during the Kalmar War. What was the Kalmar War again? My Scandinavian history professor, Dr. Leiren, would be very disappointed that I somehow wasn't paying attention the day he surely covered that. But I do remember him saying something curious. He said that Norwegian soldiers in the past allegedly, when they lacked ammunition, sometimes pulled the button off their jacket uh, and used it instead of a musket ball if they didn't have any ammunition. That strange fact came back to me during this interview I'm about to play you. 
Anyway, I associated the lure with this young lady who was supposedly about 17 years old on this fateful day in August 26th, 1612. That's what this, this tapestry was commemorating. Obviously, I lacked the details and I, I had to find out more. So a Google search immediately turned up the name of Dr. Joan Hallon Paddock. Paddock is a professional trumpeter, a conductor, and cultural presenter at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon. She is perhaps the foremost proponent of showing and demonstrating the lure as a folk instrument and the role it's played in history in the United States. That's just my view. She's got countless videos and she's lectured widely on the subject. These days, she even, before talking about the lure, starts and puts the lure into a broader context as a signaling instrument, something used to communicate from a distance. And she talks about several different kinds of signaling instruments. And I want to bring you into our interview at the point where she was talking about uh, one instrument that's used across many cultures, including Scandinavian cultures. Um, this is a cow horn. And this also has the same things in common with the lure, lip vibrated. The mouthpiece is drilled in to the end of the horn. Can you think of any other cultures that might have used the uh, cow horn like that? There are several cultures yeah. that use the cow horn. Okay, so there's a you're showing me a cow horn with with yeah holes drilled in it. Yes, it. and this one happens to also be a having a mouthpiece sawed off at the top. These instruments are played in Sweden a lot, and they are they have been in Norway as well. Uh, especially if they're goat horns, uh, they have a much different intonation and sound to them than this. The notes that I'll play are, as I reflected on it, and I'm familiar with Swedish tune called Gamel Favudsom, which is the old folk song by Oscar Lindbergh. The, the coup horn, they call it. Those are uh, some of the predecessors because they're signal instruments, there's a melodic instrument. My notion is that more women played, and I can imagine a shepherd boy also carrying a mm -hmm. signal instrument, of course. Right. But because it was the women we're in charge of taking the animals to the pasture. Up the to the setters, yeah. It was their responsibility to take all of the animals up in the summertime where the grass was fresh and green. And so I own two lure, lurina would be plural in- uh, Lurina, that lures, yeah. Yeah, and one that was made in Sweden. It's in, in the key of G, so it's much longer than the one that I'm going to show you today. Okay. They were uh, made in Sweden, and they still are made in Sweden, maybe not in one piece. His is in one piece uh, that he gave to me, and mine is in one piece. Now, just recently, within the last three months, um, Magnar Storbecken, who made, who is the nephew to Egil Storbecken. Yes, I have one of his books, yeah. Okay. 
he but Magnar has passed away, mm-hmm. which is very sad because he was really carrying on the tradition of making the Lurina. And you could buy different joints and he sold it in pieces. Interesting. So you could purchase different size mouthpieces and you could purchase different lengths of a joint that made it uh, in different keys, B flat, D, E flat, whatever you wanted. Some people put up a video that's really fascinating because it shows exactly how he makes the lure. Magnus Storbeckin, okay. Funny because he comes up and it starts with him uh, coming through a door and you see his workshop and everything. And he's got his working apron on, which is leather. And he turns around and he's butt naked. And it ends with a sense of humor as well. This is the mouthpiece of so my. That's e- your lure. And it's graduated almost conical into the center, right? Would you say? I don't have a dime or a penny with me, but if I put my little finger in, it stops right there. I like the conical mouthpiece, the bore size of this is much bigger than any mouthpiece. It's about the same bore size as like a tuba mouthpiece. Oh, that's big. When my lips are vibrating, I'm getting all of the quality of sound. And this particular instrument, beautiful quality of sound, I think. It's made with spruce. Spruce. And carved. Carved out. And. Oh, that's beautiful. We're looking into the bell right now. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know if you can see that, but it's signed Egil Storbecken. No kidding. No kidding. <laughs> so when I bought this, Eric, I had no idea who Egil Storbecken was. Yeah. I and I'd, I'd seen 1981. I think that when I went to tourist shops, I saw the statue of somebody playing what looked like a trumpet, but it, you know, I didn't get it. Didn't didn't phase me. I wasn't thinking about. Prilarguri then. And then in 1986-87, I was on a Fulbright in Norway. And as a trumpeter and hospitant of the Norges Music Hogskula, I was studying with Harik Fabek, a wonderful, wonderful teacher. But I met lots of people and organists that wanted me to play different places. And so they would purchase a, a train ticket for me and they'd say I could stay the, the night at their house. and. Mm-hmm play at the church. We'd have a rehearsal and I'd brought lots of repertoire with me and I purchased some repertoire. But there was one time that the train was not going to Trondheim, but it stopped in Trondheim. And the stop was like 40 minutes or something. And I'd looked out the train window and I saw a Husfried. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go there. I have just this much time and I ran. I wasn't a knitter then. And so I bypassed all of that stuff. Right. And I was in the back and I was looking around. And in a pail, there were about 10 of these, like sticking up like this. And I thought, what's this? So I picked it up and it looked like a mouthpiece. You know, it was a mouthpiece. So I played every single one of them and I bought the one that I liked the best. So let's describe that. How About how long is it? It's this a two. about three feet or a meter long. About a meter long and it's gradually tapered. Yeah. Did so you I would say, say that, that way? It absolutely is tapered gradually all the way through. And you can see the wide bell there. Yeah. And I, and I'm, I have large hands about Uh, palm size for you. Okay. 
the bell. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the little finger size is the top. Now, my husband maintains that this must not have been a work uh, that was intended to be a beautiful instrument because there were many knots around right here. And the first time I traveled back to North Dakota to perform, uh, especially with Rolf Stang, I'd performed at the North Coast Fest before, but never on the lure. Yeah. But I brought this back for playing fanfares. <laughs> and, and I was so depressed when I opened up the tube because it had broken in half. Oh my gosh. So crying, I called my husband. And this is when Bob loaned to me his G lure because he had two of them. And so Bob and I began to play antiphonally for everything for several years. And he always brought the two of them to the Husfest and I would use one. He drove right. to Minnesota. And at one point he gave one to me. He's no longer living now. But my husband fixed it. He put stays all the way around the side after he repaired it. And then he glued this piece of leather that he'd sewn on. So what would you say? Is a stay almost like a splint kind of a thing? Yeah. I mean, if if I bring this close, yeah. you can see that it's not smooth. Oh, it's like ribbing. Yeah, it's okay. like ribbing that's there. So they're probably like bamboo sticks. Okay. And then he, he sewed it up. With leather. Yeah. That's clever. It was very, it's very nice. Now, people, sometimes when they make a lure from scratch and they've seen this one, <laughs> they, they, put that, they put the leather on there thinking that that's what the way it's supposed to be. But as you know, that's not. But I love it because it's distinctive. It's mine. And I put my hand right there. Um, this is in the key of E flat. So there's an E flat on the piano. Yep. That's the lowest note I can play on it. It's a fundamental or something. Yeah. So then the first partial is an octave above. Then a fifth. And then a fourth. Third. Another third. Another third. And then it gets closer and closer as it goes higher. So that, that, so the interval between notes is getting closer? Yeah, the interval between the notes is getting closer and closer and closer. But you see, I'm perform when I perform the lure, uh, I do play some calls that would probably be uh, typical. But I also think musically, and, and I can, I have the range, so I play high. So the longer the lure, the lower the fundamental? Yes, the longer the lure, the lower the pitch. Um, so I'm standing and... Comes uh, up about to your waist? Uh-huh. Yeah, it is my waist, exactly. Okay. Uh, if I take, oh, almost double the length. So almost. So uh, 90 inches or so would You're be... twice as tall as <laughs> the lure. Is that wrapped in birch bark? I know some. Yes. Uh, yeah. I guess I didn't finish that after the carving would take place and they glue it back together. They they carve out all the inside and they, they glue it back together. And then by the time they get up to the top, they will have had to have put a 
well, what I saw Magnar Storbeckin do is to put a, a, a like a drill yeah. with a long bit on it. But of course, they didn't have those all the time. So they, they would have had to use a scraper or somehow get it out. But then they wrap it with birch bark all the way around after they have glued the two halves together. Huh, it makes into pieces. That's interesting. He had molds where he had the forms that would accept what he wanted to do because they become so long. Uh -huh. He made a, you know, cut and then the, he makes it so you can put the joint in and then cut and put another joint in. But this is one piece. And so the two halves, okay. the, this half, the top half, and yeah. the bottom. Okay. That were put together. And then by the time you get down to the mouthpiece, of course, it is block. So it has to be solid. First of all, reamed out, and then the and, and then this top part shaped into the a cup or a funnel. Mouthpiece, right. Would you like for me to play uh, just a little lure? I never sit and play the lure. <laughs> so let me ask some things as you're blowing. So I, I know on my Sadiofloita, um, the willow flute is, it seems like the, the more pressure I blow into it, the higher the note is. And to do, do the lowest note, I have to, it almost has to be really ginger. Uh, yes, I would say the speed of your air is everything. Maybe that's it, speed. The speed of your air. So I have one of these here that um, my friend has uh, loaned to me or given to me. And it's actually, if I take out, it has the mouthpiece. Okay. Yeah, I, my, I got mine in a music store in Oslo uh, about 20 years ago. It's almost in G. That would be the lowest note on mine. How about yours? Well, let's see. And I'm, I'm blowing. I'm going to have to do it soft. Oh, if you can hear that, no, about like that. Maybe it's an octave down. It's in D, D. And I also have a, a second cellulite that's it's narrower, so I can play higher, higher pitch songs. Well, that's very nice to have one in D. From top to bottom, this is about a half inch, so the bore is about a half an inch. Yeah. From the top of the plug to the bottom, this it's about length. nine and three quarters inches. And how long is yours? That's about two feet. Yeah. And that's why the tone is longer because the lower, the longer the instrument, the lower the pitch. So there's the harmonic series. What do people mean when they say the natural scale? It's the same thing? Yes. Bah, bah, bah. Those are the notes of the harmonic series and the natural scale. Got it. And then as you get higher, it gets closer together. Why, why don't we go back to the lure and it and work into the Prilaguri story? Okay. Well, the lure 
is an instrument, a signal instrument, going back to that point, that was used by uh, ladies, girls, women, who would go up to the mountains in the summertime, to the setter, mm -hmm. where they took care of animals. And they could use the lure as a signal, for sure. Uh, for example, they could play from one place to another. Long distances, the sound would carry for long distances. Also, they could sound the lure to scare away a lynx or a bear, a wolf. And certainly, if they were still having troubles, the sound would carry down to the valley where menfolk could come to help. Uh, I even might muse that there may have been a call, a special call that someone could sound to effect a, a tryst, <laughs> perhaps. Perhaps, know. yep. Yeah, well, you hear about, you know, it was very conservative, Lutheran, a state religion, but humans are humans. Yes. And I read about the Huldra and what I, understand or where I how I interpreted it is that some girls may have taken their lives may have uh, taken and had their children but buried them alive and so the Huldra exist as ghosts in the mountains in the fjords right, right. and uh, and there's a wonderful book of poetry by Bart, Bart. Bart Sutter he has written a book of poetry and in fact, he has on the front of the cover of the poetry book is this picture. Cow horn. And mm -hmm. it, yeah, the coo horn. And he uh, and and inside of it are fantastic poems. And in that book, he acknowledges someone whose book he's read. Now, I went there, but I went to that book, was able to somehow get it online for mm -hmm. a time. And I read it, so I had that knowledge then. And so when I read the book of poetry, everything made sense to me. The longing, the the horn, and the and how it sounds. Yes, haunting sound, and and the idea of the huldra and the loneliness, and especially it, this is a time that all the women in the family would go up. So when a woman became too old or feeble to go extremely sad for that person and some of the longing is in the in the sound of the modal scale is in that too so it's not only Prelarguri then who owned lure all women there is a controversy about whether Prelarguri played that lure or whether she played a prelar horn you can call this a coup horn but to move the fingers is also with the words Prilar. Prilaguri was uh, born in the area of where Molda is now. And she was uh, orphaned, but she was taken in by a family. So she was adopted by these accounts that I've read. And she was quite feeble as a child. She couldn't walk without walking sticks and she had uh, mm. poor breath capacity, all the all of these things. Well, being Lutheran and perhaps having and believing in miracles on Annunciation Day, which is in the spring, I think March something, they took Prilaguri up to the mountains to uh, up the File Mountains or Fila, 
Filefjell, they took her up uh, to the St. Thomas Church, which was a Stavkirke there in the Filefjell. They don't know whether it was the fresh air or if it was the miracle that the Annunciation Day is supposed to bring, but she was able to walk home healthy when she was she was about 15 or 16 years of age, and she was in the area of Kringen in Seljord, had become engaged to a young man named Shell, hmm. who had been inscripted into the Kingdom of Denmark, Norway soldiers to fight in the Kalmar War. Can you give a little background about that war? Here is a picture of the, the Kalmar. Kalmar Union. Right. So we have southwestern of, Finland, Baltic, right? Baltic area, mm -hmm. right? East, east of the Baltic Latvia, Sea. Now Latvia, Lithuania, mm -hmm. and so forth, and uh, the tip of Denmark, Germany down here, huh? Oh, tip of Germany all the way up through Denmark. Okay. Through Denmark and Sweden and Finland, and then the the Kola Peninsula and Russia. It was not part of that. Right. But then we have. A couple of little islands here that maybe are they the Shetlands? That's what I'm guessing. So you're looking west into the in, ocean. In the North Sea, and, and this is above uh, Scotland. Above the UK. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I have Iceland. Right. And Greenland. And that was uh, administered or under well, under one. What I understood is that Queen Margareta had no offspring. And so Margareta of she was ruler of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, which included Finland, from the late 1380s until her death. She wanted to unite Scandinavia forever into one single entity to resist and compete against the might of the Hanseatic League. She was succeeded by her grand nephew, Eric of Pomerania. Her regency marked the beginning of the Dano-Norwegian Union, which was to last more than four centuries. Their son, Olaf, was chosen as king, but Olaf was still a minor. This brought not only Norway, but also Iceland, the Faroe Islands, and Greenland under the Danish crown. That's when that happened. So here we are. The Kalmar War went on for a long, long time. I need to mention King James of Scotland. Yep. He married the sister of King Christian IV. And so King James was the brother-in-law to King Christian. King Christian of Denmark, uh, from which Christiania was named. Then became named Oslo. Who was it that, that um, made a, a, a toll on passing through Kattegat between Denmark and Malmö? There was a toll that the king of Denmark, Norway, Christian, he received a lot of money that for everybody who went through there, because that was the seafaring way to get right between the Baltic Sea and and the North Sea and North Sea, whether or, whether or not they were going for lumber or whatever, or just trade, but they had to pay a tax. King Carl of Sweden was tired of playing, paying that tax. He didn't want to pay that tax. And so what may have then been called Lapland, which is... Sami, yeah. So yeah. it's a Sami area, which is in the north, uh, including North Sweden, North Finnmark, I mean, Finland. Yeah, North, north Norway, Sweden. right. Well, he took that area and decided 
that he would tax that, therefore making another way to have an area to go across to the Atlantic and the North Sea. And because of that, taxation and not King Christian not getting all of the money, he declared war on the Kingdom of Sweden. So then started the war between the Kingdom of Denmark, Norway. And as the years took a toll on all of the men who went into that war, they needed to hire mercenaries. Sweden needed needed to hire mercenaries to counteract the forces of Kingdom of Denmark, Norway. And so some of the accounts that I've read have said James said no, he did not want to do this. But when his commanding officers, especially George Sinclair, heard about it, he was a little bit on the wild side. I mean, he was he wanted to be involved with war. He wanted to be engaged with the men who might be coming from prisons and from Dundee who were freed in order to fight for the Swedish crown. But it was exciting. His wife was pregnant and maybe he knew this and she was worried about him, the stories say, because she knew that if he joined rascally kind of men that he would uh, stoop to that level. So uh, Captain Ramsey and Colonel George Sinclair picked up a lot of different mercenaries. So the two, if they met at one of the Shetland Islands, and they, I think they had a party of three boats, maybe two, but then they, from there, they took off towards the Rumsdahl area. And some of what I read said that this was a usual route for people. It has been said that when they made this trek across the North Sea, that a mermaid came up out of the water, hmm. said, back or else you will find that the kingdom of Denmark, Norway will be your grave. Let's say that the reason why Prilaguri ended up in middle Norway, sure. in Gudbrandsdal Valley, was because maybe she went there to, to work, had become engaged to a young man named Shell. I don't know how she met Shell, but they were to be married very soon. And she had to be patient and wait because he was in the army or in the war. Now the weapons at this time, the Scots had swords, they had uh, bows and arrows and shields, they had bagpipes. I'll insert here. (laughs) I almost laughed out loud at this, for there have indeed been days when I've considered bagpipes as formidable Scottish weapons. Somehow I don't think she actually meant that. But the Norwegians, uh, they, they had muskets, and they had something called an arquebus, which was a very long rifle that had to be held up with a tripod. And I think there was a flint. And in my lectures, I talk about the tartan that comes on the uniform of the Scots. And also that's a part of their culture because it's included in their coat of arms and everything. When the Scots and the English landed outside of the orders of King James, because I was always wondering in my head, why would a brother-in-law allow this to happen to his own brother-in-law, right? But then in reading many different sources and finding another place, oh, it's because George Sinclair was a little rascal, 
rascally yep. wanted to have glory going into war and getting the power and so forth. When they came to the coast, there was a gentleman, Pear, and his daughter, and they were in a fishing boat. And Pear and his daughter thought nothing of the approaching ships. They thought it was a merchant. They were waiting and fishing while waiting. And then, oh, it's an invasion. And they took Pear upon the ship and they took his daughter upon the ship. She wailed and cried and they let her go. They made him be their guide. And in the meantime, he made a message when everybody was sleeping and he put it into a bujdika, little... which is an iron, it looks like a race relay baton. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. That is enclosed on both sides. One side had a lid that could be sealed, but he was able to put a message in a bujdika. Well, pair he knew that this was trouble and he wanted to protect the, his home people of the kingdom of Denmark, Norway. And so he took the crew, the, the Scots, on a different path, circuitous, all around the mountain, <laughs> back and forth and back and forth. And they caught on to him, but not before he ran into a woman who pretended to be crazy, who actually knew him. She happened to be in the mountains. The soldiers it is said that they were going to kill her. And he said, oh, no, 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 don't, don't bother with her. She's just a loopy, crazy old woman. And he said, let me just give her a hug and let her be on her way. And they said, okay. And she, he gave her a hug. And in the meantime, you know how the bunad is so filled with lots of material folds and so forth. And he was able to somehow insert the bujdika into her skirts. And away she went, and she had the news that she could carry to the Good Brunsdahl area. And when they had that news, they were able to light what are called Varda. The signal fires? Signal fires on the top of mountains all right. the way across. In the meantime, the Scots knew that Pear had lied to them. They held him by the feet and dunked him headfirst into a frozen creek and lifted him up and said, okay, we're going to let you just go unless you tell us the truth, you know, dunk, dunk, dunk up. And he said, this is the way I'll tell you the way. Now, some sources say that the Scots were not awful. They were not mean. They were just very nice to people. And then a lot of sources say that they were awful, that they murdered and raped and killed. And even those families that made a big meal for them and left the area and hid up in the mountains, they had a bloodhound that, that hunted them out and they were able to get them as well. And so the people of Goodbrunsdahl were hearing these terrible stories about what they did and they knew that they had to do something. And there's a sheriff of the area, the Landsman, uh, and he took his staff and he came right into the center of the church probably while church was going on and he slammed his staff down on the floor and said that we have to do something and then they all came together came up with this idea that because of the very narrow area of the logan river and the valley that they would be able to lure huh, L -U -R. Yeah, yes, very nice. Lure the Scots into the certain area where they had to pass anyway to get to Sweden and then ambush. And their plan was to have Prilaguri sound the alarm. 
on the lure. She also, in some accounts I've read, she also was to wave a white a white yeah sheet or something cloth right so in the river there was a little island in the river and on that island they had a older man with a musket and he was maybe in his red long johns and sitting backwards on his steed (laughs) so it was quite a sight to see and they thought oh because all the young men were gone it was only women and old men and children who were in this area and they thought, well, is that all that they could send out to, to, to fight us? And in the meantime, I guess that there are stories that say that lure sounding beautifully like an alphorn in the distance, not as a signal, mm-hmm. and that the bagpipe of one of the persons in the group of mercenary soldiers played and they echoed each other back and forth for a while, not as a signal, but just I- as enticement. They passed the gentleman who was sitting backwards on the horse with the musket, who's, which had a ball that couldn't go much further than whatever. A signal was sounded, and that signal was probably a long with uh, short, frightening sounds that would come from the lure or the priller horn, if that's what uh, Prillerguri was using. I like to think that it was the lure. you know, something very loud and fanfare-like. And there was a gentleman named Seliostat was, and he was the person behind the arquebus. He did not have a bullet. He had took a silver button off of his bunad shirt and put it in and made the first shot as people were coming through this area. And George Sinclair was first in the group that went forward. Well, this first shot was very accurate in its shot because of the tripod where it was kept and it hit Sinclair and it killed him. Uh, So the mermaid was right. All the other soldiers marching through and either they were squashed by things that came through. They also were, uh, some jumped into the rushing river and drowned. Some tried to go to the other side but there were farmers on the other side, old farmers and their wives with shovels and picks right. and pitchforks and so forth. And some sources say there were like 400 mercenaries and some sources say that there were a thousand mercenaries. But of those people, there were very few to survive. And those that did survive were taken to a barn and it was fall, you know, it was late August when this happened, the Battle of Kringen, and harvest is coming, and uh, they have to use all the hands necessary. They don't know if it was because they'd done so many awful things to the people of Western Norway, but of all of the men that they did capture and head in a, a barn house, they murdered most of them, like, except for, I think the number was 16. And 16 were sent down to Oslo into the Akershus, which had a prison. And there they were let go after a few years. But George Sinclair is buried outside of the churchyard in Kham. And people still from Scotland come to honor his memory. And in Seljord, they've taken the the picture or the silhouette of Prilaguri 
and made her a town symbol playing the lure. There's a, is there a statue there? And there is a statue. In fact, when I was on my lure tour, uh, here's a picture of the statue. Oh, that's that. a nice mm -hmm. a young woman blowing the lure. You saw the, the 400 anniversary from 1612 to, to 2012. They had a 400 years anniversary and the Scots and the, and the Norwegians, of course, are friends. There's no animosity. And in fact, taken into the bunad, which is the national dress of many counties in Norway, they've taken in the plaid and adopted it. Especially Gubernstalen, right? Yes. That's how I've always tried to figure out why that looked like a tartan. Is that the connection? That is the connection. I'll no, be darned. You said, mentioned that you'd seen some of the things from my goings on at, at Norse Coast Fest. It was so fun. I had scripts at the last minute that were just, I had my head turned maybe because I was playing the lure to sound it. There wasn't a whole lot of time to review what I was going to talk about. And I was so excited to see the plaid come up on someone. And they, of course, didn't write about Priller Goody in their, in their little thing. So I, I talked about it. I was so excited to say, I know where this comes from. <laughs> and this is, this is the reason why, you know, the king never forgave taxes because money was important to the kingdom. Right. And he, what a, Priller Vic was given to her. Her husband-to-be was killed in the tussle but she was given land, and it's still now called Prilervik. The, the king did not charge her any taxes for her land for her lifetime. And so why do we think that she could be a myth? The only thing I can think of is that she was a woman. In some of the accounts, the lure is not even mentioned. A sound to battle was not mentioned. Right. But yet it's been passed down orally through these songs the musicians were the keepers of the stories. So someone composed and some people added, and then there became oodles of verses that told the whole story and that still sung today. That's great. So thank you for um, your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Wasn't that beautiful? Dr. Paddock playing the lure at the opening of the McMinnville Community Center in Oregon. 
She sounded the lure at the start of the program and then went on to conduct the band for the program. And of course, she was wearing, as she often does, her Norland green bunad when she plays the lure. Be sure to navigate to the nordicontap.com website to look at all the different links and references that we talked about in this podcast, including Dr. Paddock's videos, that's Hersfest School Fest lesson plan, a couple historical paintings, one by Tiedemann and Müller, depicting the Scots landing on the Norwegian coast, and another of the actual Battle of Kringen. This is done by Georg Nielsen Stramdal information about an arquebus matchlock rifle or musket, depictions of what people have pictured Prelaguri as looking like, information on lures and seteriente, info on the ronda stuck or the striped pattern of the Gubrans Dalen men's and women's bunad, and the very striking similarity of that ronda stock pattern to the Sinclair tartan. Then there's that video of Magnar Storbecken uh, showing how he makes lures. The tune played at the beginning of this podcast was composed and performed by Dr. Paddock and can be heard on a video that's part of the Hussfest lesson I've referenced. I have made adjustments to the sound, so it's been modified from the original. The introductory music, Ingles Waltz, is composed by Morten Alfred Heurup and performed by him and Ruthie Dornfeld. Check out the book available on his website, mortonalfred.com, to purchase a book of 25 tunes that includes Ingalis Waltz. Both of them have websites. Our extra music was composed and performed by Daryl Jackson, the amazing one-man band. See also our podcast about him. We thank all of them for allowing us to play their beautiful music. Again, check out our website at Nordic on Tap for extra links and interesting things about episodes. Please do leave a comment or drop us a line at nordicontap at gmail.com and I will write you back personally. So that's it for this time and we look forward to seeing you again on Nordic on Tap. Harigot. Miseus. Miseus.